Whether you're brand new to keto or if you're a seasoned veteran, you're going to love what we put together for you at onestopketo.com. One Stop Keto has put together this great new ketogenic box just for you, the listeners of my podcast. It includes epic pork rinds, epic bacon bits, peely nuts, roam sticks, primal kitchen collagen bars, and vital protein stick packs. Again, visit the website onestopketo.com to get this exclusive offer for my listeners. Onestopketo.com. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the fresh pressed olive oil club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs. It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh, yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com You are listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc featuring veteran health podcaster Jimmy Moore and Surprise Arizona family physician Dr. Adam Nally They are here answering the most pressing questions about a low carb high fat ketogenic diet Visit our website ketotalk.com and now, it's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Here's Jimmy and Adam. Hey, hey, guys. We're back here on episode 75 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Visit our website. It's ketotalk.com and our burgeoning Facebook page, ketotalkfb.com, where we're quickly approaching 20,000 members. So if you're not joined in on the fun yet, go there. Go to KetoTalkFB.com and uh, you can uh, meet all your fellow Ketonians. And sometimes you'll see my good buddy, my pal, he is Dr. Adam Nally pop in on there. What's up, Adam? Hey, Jimmy, and hello, all you Ketonians out there. Um, That Facebook page is amazing. Or should I say, welcome back. You've been gone a a couple weeks here from the show and people are like, where's the doc? (laughs) (laughs) So some days you just have to you have to take a break. So that's, Dude, that's what I, I understand. Yes, yeah, yeah, awesome. Just, you, you got you can only work so hard, and then you got to you got to pull the steam off. So that's the, that's the big key. Well, it gave me a chance to uh, to talk with our fellow uh, uh, keto podcaster Sean Miner a couple of weeks ago. She's got a great new women focused podcast for keto. So that was pretty cool to have her on. Uh, talking about her new podcast, the Keto for Women show, and then last week uh, I took down that uh, that vegan propaganda film. Have you heard about the What the Health documentary? Oh yes, and you did a good job, by the way. So yes, oh, thank it you. was. We had fun was, with uh, it. 
<laughs> yes. And, and uh, yeah, to be honest with you, I'm really glad I didn't have to comment on that one because I, I literally the first time I watched it, the first time I tried to watch it, I had to turn it off after about 10 minutes because I really got nauseated. Oh, you made it 10 so, minutes. Most people I made I it talk 10 to, minutes. they get to the part where Neil Barnard says that sugar has nothing to do with diabetes and they can't handle it after that. <laughs> oh, my wife heard me screaming at the television and said, I think you need to turn that off and take a big, big deep yes. breath. <laughs> <sighs> Well, you did make a cameo in in that response video. I did do the oh, that's oh, bacon. Go. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there. So, <laughs> well, I it's was good, there in spirit. It's good to have you back, and uh, we're going to have a great show here today. Getting back to our regular format again here in episode seventy five, and let's just hop right into this first headline I wanted to talk about. The headline says, weight loss, why eating more carbs could be the secret to your transforming body, to transforming your body. Weight loss can be achieved by adding more carbohydrates into your diet, according to experts. Who are these experts? Uh, Carbohydrates have been largely demonized in the world of weight loss. Many people try out low-carb diets in a bid to shed the pounds, and some studies have even suggested that they can reverse type 2 diabetes. But one nutritionist thinks that carbs have an unfair reputation, insisting that we should be eating more of them to achieve weight loss. And goes on to talk about this Australian nutritionist and dietitian named Susie Burrell, who says that carbs are an essential part of our diet. And she goes into all the usual things. But isn't it funny how they say experts say, and it turns out it's one expert. (laughs) I know, and and the ch- the challenge is that you've got a dietitian who's literally speaking from you know twenty year old science. We used to think that fat burned in a carbohydrate flame, and that was that was what I was taught in medical school. Yeah, and I was taught that in biology. You know, you have to have the carb, and the carb starts the flame, and then then you can burn the fat. And that's actually not what happens. We know better than that now, and we've been talking about that for a year and a half on this podcast. Yeah, um, that's the challenge issue. The other concern is she she implies that by cutting out carbs, you actually slow your basal metabolic rate. And that's not even close to the science. The science says that if you if you restrict calories, if you cut your calories back over a period of time, caloric restriction actually slows the metabolic rate, not carbs. Mm-hmm. And there, that's where that's where the, the fallacy arises. And so you're getting two pieces of mixed science that, that are being misinterpreted and, and unfortunately published in, in the, uh, the uh, British media. Yeah, and she has just enough of the of the talking points to get published into the British media. <laughs> that's the that's the sad part. I, I know, and it's uh, yeah, it is sad. And of course, they they go into all the unpleasant side effects of a low carb diet, such as bad breath. Um, Papa Mint, uh, dude, <laughs> how hard is that? <laughs> uh, when you go into ketosis, this is a ways body uh, body's way of surviving when carbs are low by converting fat stores into a fuel that can be burnt. Well, at least she acknowledges that fat can be burned as fuel. That's pretty good. It is good. At least there's a positive acknowledgement there. The challenge <laughs> is that always yeah. look for the bright side. <laughs> Well, there you go. (laughs) And of course, at the very end, you know, if we just ate more plant-based foods like rice, cereal, fruit, and starchy vegetables, those are the best for releasing glucose into the bloodstream. Well, yeah, they'll spike your glucose big time. (laughs) Yeah, they'll make you constipated too. So we won't go there. Loaded belly constipation for that one. (laughs) No, we'll pass on that one. (laughs) We'll pass on that one. I love it. All right. You did a Freudian slip and didn't even know it. So the the next headline is also from the British uh, media. We're going to pass on that. Get it? Pass instead of. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was buried deeply in there for those that are truly listening. See, I've missed you, Doc. I needed to to have like a joke in there somewhere. The next headline, (laughs) cut down on carbohydrate to raise the chance of getting pregnant. Couples are trying or that are trying for a baby advised to eat only one portion of carbs a day. So British Fertility Society says that uh, the carbohydrate food group appears to play a role in conception, but they say that a low-carb diet, the evidence, follow the evidence for a low-carb diet, doubling a woman's chances of getting pregnant. And of course, we've known the fertility improvements that happen with a low-carb ketogenic diet for a little while. And I think partly it's the insulin lowering effects, which then improves for a lot of women, the PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which helps them get pe- pregnant, right? Yes. 
Very much so. Yeah. So it's good to see that positiveness about low carb keto getting out there in the mainstream. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting because this is like a four year old study that they did. Jeffrey Russell did it in Delaware and they looked at 120 women and they found that there's a, you know, if you eat a, if you eat a higher carb diet, there's a 33% less chance you're going to be able to conceive. And that's, that's huge. And why that didn't hit the news media, you know, four years ago, I don't realize that. To be honest, (laughs) well, I know why. Yes, I know why I'm thinking outside the box, but the, uh, the challenge is, you know, that's huge for, for a lot of women. And, and that it's one of the things that I've been telling women as they come into my practice for years is I'm going to put you on this diet, but if you don't want to have a baby, be careful. Um, because it, it, uh, you, you can and will be more likely to conceive if you're sexually active. That's the new best-selling book, The Baby Maker Diet. <laughs> the Baby Maker Diet. Oh, my gosh. Although, if you're 80 yeah. years old and you try to eat ketogenic, don't expect a baby. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> There's going to be a whole lot of 50-year-old men really mad at us. <laughs> and then, finally, we have this one from A Sweet Life. Girl with diabetes and insulin allergy to receive a pancreas transplant A 12-year-old girl here in South Carolina, where I live, has type 1 diabetes, and her parents say that she has an intense allergy to insulin therapy, and she's set to undergo a rarely performed whole pancreas transplant at the University of Minnesota. The first time I heard that she had an insulin allergy, I thought, oh my goodness, how how is she still alive? Well, and that's the challenge, is that they they have... There are there are some rare cases of insulin allergies, and it's not necessarily the insulin itself. It's the component that allows the insulin to stay in liquid, and so yeah. it's the base that it's made in that she has an allergy to. So it's exogenous and, insulin that she's. It, yes, it's it's exogenous. So insulin being injected. So she's a type one diabetic. Her pancreas doesn't make its own insulin, um, and so she has to get insulin from some in some way. The challenge, though, is she has this tremendous allergy to the components that make up the exogenous insulin and that's and so so it's really hard to get it the interesting thing is is they said she did well on a low-carb diet but they were all worried about too much fat and i thought oh my gosh somebody just needs to teach this poor family it's okay to eat fat if you if you're not taking in any carbs um because she was actually apparently the, the little brief paragraph they said about it implied that she was doing well with a low carb diet um which is how we used to treat type 1 diabetes before we invented exogenous insulin. That's right. Yeah, it's sad that uh, that they didn't give more credence to the low-carb diet. It says for Emmy, her parents said the options weren't viable. Emmy was put on a low-carb diet for a short period of time combined with a high dose of the steroid prednisone. And uh, the downside of the diet was that Emmy was hungry all the time and we had to increase her fats, which had us worried about her heart health. Ugh! It's like the fat is the secret sauce to making it work. That's the next book. Fat is the secret sauce. That's it right there. <laughs> I'm giving away all my book secrets today. So, but I thought that was really good, and and we definitely wish Emmy well with this transplant. Uh, it did look like she would have to be on a lot of medications for the rest of her life, and and maybe. Through this experience, they do become educated that a low-carb, high-fat, what we call keto um, diet, it probably would be something that would be beneficial to her when she does get her new pancreas. Hopefully, hopefully. And, and, and you never want to have to have somebody, especially a child, go through something like this. And so heart, our hearts and prayers go out to their family, but hopefully hopefully it goes well. And, Absolutely. And, you know, I, there, I've, I've got a patient who had a pancreatic transplant in my office, so it, it's uh, pretty amazing. Is it rare? It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah. He actually, I, I'm trying to remember where he had to go. Um, I think he had to go out of state to get it done. Then he came back, but it's, he's doing well. He's doing well. I he had a big old, he had a big old tumor. And so they ended up having to remove it. And then that's, that's where he ended up. Wow. I wouldn't think it would be hundreds or thousands of them in a year. It's, you're probably talking less than a hundred, probably a year. It doesn't seem it's like very, it would be that, that common. It's very rare. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a very common procedure at all. Hmm. Well, special thank you to Susan and James. They helped to uh, keep this show on the air. Uh, they went to paypal.me slash ketotalk or to ketotalk.com and click on the donate button. That helps keep us on the air. And let's get to the first featured question that we have here for today's show, Adam. Ethan has it. Jimmy and Adam, various spices are reputed for their glucose lowering effects. For example, apple cider vinegar, 
fenugreek, and cinnamon are all well known to decrease blood sugar levels, and I'm sure there are many others. My question for you guys is this. What impact does ingesting these spices have while on a ketogenic diet, specifically on beta-hydroxybutyrate blood ketone levels? I currently take fenugreek because I learned about the glucose lowering effects in a study when it slowed the absorption of the garbage these sad dieters were eating. I loved how he said that. It slowed the absorption of the garbage because they were eating a sad diet. <laughs> Uh, but since I turned to a well-formulated keto diet and it has very few carbs to begin with, uh, with would the fenugreek provide the same benefit or may it even backfire given that it has almost 60% carbohydrates in it? I realize blood sugar lowering isn't the same as ketone boosting, but I do see the two going hand in hand. So what do you think? I realize this might be a question without a very clear answer, but I'd still love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for the very informative and helpful podcast, Ethan. So Ethan wants to know what impact does blood glucose lowering supplements have on blood ketone levels and are they beneficial while eating ketogenic? I've never heard of fenugreek. Is that... Is that something that you've heard of? Yeah, um, fenugreek is actually um, is, is kind of where they derived the uh, acarbose type medications from. Fenugreek actually slows the absorption of glucose in the gut, so it inhibits the glucose moving through the wall of the gut lining, so it slows down the speed with which your blood sugar rises. Is it the a problem? Leaf? With, what is it? It's a, an herb. Oh, you have to. You would ask me that. I think <laughs> it's an herb. Um, I, I to, to be honest, I can't remember. No worries. You keep going. I'll Google it while you're um, talking. The uh, but the problem with fenugreek is it actually stimulates an insulin response, um, so it does lower blood sugar, but it does because it as a the detriment of weight of the gain. Insulin. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's a slowing of the of the gut absorption of sugar, but there, there's also a spike in insulin. So you will see a sugar lowering effect, um, but the challenge is depending on how much that insulin response occurs, that it may not help with weight loss. All right, I'm looking at a picture of fenugreek on Google Images. It looks like a cross between a kernel of corn and a peanut. <laughs> That's what it kind of looks like. And really? Yeah, and then it's got leaves next to it. So I'm assuming the leaves are what we're referring to, but there's some kind of a fruit that looks kind of nutty, corny. It's a corny nut. <laughs> That's... <laughs> So you heard it here first. Get your corny nuts to lower your blood sugar, but raise your insulin. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was used. It was. I know it's been. I know it's used in the Chinese um, uh, medicine field, and I think it yeah. was. It's got some ancient, uh, uh, either Greek or historic, um, historically uh, European uses. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, but but it, it kind of fell out of favor after a while. Hmm. Maybe because of the insulin boosting effects that we didn't want to see happen, uh, that that's why it's lowering the blood glucose. Yeah. Could be any number of reasons. Yeah. And this is a good reminder is if something lowers blood glucose, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. If it's raising insulin to make that glucose lowering effect, that's not a good thing. So and maybe some of the carbohydrates uh, we're contributing to that as well. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. You know, Ethan asked about cinnamon. Yes. Cinnamon actually increases PPAR alpha and also gamma, which actually helps in the insulin sensitivity part. And that's why we stuck it in the berberine plus. Yes. You know, and, and because it has such a powerful effect that way. So cinnamon is great. Um, and then apple cider vinegar is an interesting one that he mentions because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people show up in my office. You know, they drink their apple cider vinegar every morning. And the, the scientific studies that they did on apple cider vinegar actually show that the vinegar itself slows the GI transit time and mm -hmm. decreases satiety. So there wasn't really any effect that they saw, at least from what I was able to identify in the science out there, that the, the vinegar actually changes the way the body handles the glucose. It's just that it slows the GI transit time. So you actually absorb less glucose over a period of time and you're less hungry. So you eat less. And wow. that's one of the issues from apple cider vinegar. The challenge though um, is that um, it, it, you, you got to drink vinegar. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> uh, no, thanks. I'll, I'll pass. So, uh, by the way, he mentioned uh, Berberine Plus. That's the uh, Keto Living line of blood sugar lowering. Go to ketoliving.com and, uh, yeah, pick it up. That's that's the company that Dr. Nally and I run together. And we're putting out some really good products now and real excited about the things that are coming down the pike. Stay, stay tuned, you guys. Oh, yeah. 
So it is the study portion of the show, and it's not really a study. It was kind of a letter that was put in the Harvard Health Publication for the Harvard Medical School, rethinking good cholesterol, a high HDL cholesterol level may not be as beneficial as once believed. What, what? This was in the July 2017 uh, issue of the Harvard Heart Letter. If you're hoping to avoid heart disease, you probably keep tabs on your blood cholesterol levels, especially LDL, the bad cholesterol. Too much LDL in the bloodstream creates the plaque that accumulates inside the arteries. And this is all a bunch of hogwash. So don't pay attention to that. In contrast, (laughs) er, right, Doc? (laughs) In contrast, the HDL has long been known as the good cholesterol. These particles are known to patrol blood vessels, grabbing cholesterol from both the bloodstream and artery walls, and then ferrying them to the liver for recycling and disposal. In population-based studies, people with higher HDL levels tended to have fewer heart attacks, while those with lower have more. But the HDL story is much more complex than doctors initially thought. It turns out that not all HDL is created equal. And instead of acting as the good guy that helps to lower heart disease risk, HDL may be more of just a bystander. So this one goes pretty deep here. Uh, Anything relevatory that uh, you go, hmm, I didn't really think about that, Doc, or is this just trying to put a spin on a lot of these people that are going ketogenic and having higher HDL levels and being proud that they have a higher level of what's always been known as the good cholesterol? No, I, I think that's interesting. You know, when I when I was first in medical school, you know, the, they said, okay, you know, your heart disease risk was 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 quantified by your total cholesterol, and then at the end of medical school, they said, oh, you know what? It's not total cholesterol; it's the LDL. Um, it's the LDL is the bad one. And then that, and then about about when I came out of medical school, they basically said, um, oh no, actually, when I came out of, when I was in residency, in residency, they end up saying, well, it, the HDL is the bad one. Um, and it's and then we, we don't have to worry about total cholesterol. It's the HDL. So your HDL should be high and your LDL should be lower. And there should be a ratio. And then at the end of the residency, they said, well, you know, the ratio is not so important. Maybe the triglyceride plays a role here, too. Wow. And so that's why they created this very complex paradigm that you have to go through with your cholesterol, um, you know, with the most recent release and basically what they're trying to say, because a lot of physicians in trying to make it simple for both themselves and patients to treat, they'll go, well, your H- your LDL is high, but your HDL is high too. So you, we probably don't have to worry about it and write a statin. Yeah. The, the problem arises is that um, we're rehashing LDL and HDL because that's on, that's the only thing that the insurance companies want to pay for. Mm. Um, and that's where all the research dollars are at. So we're going to keep rehashing these two numbers and, you know, up and down and win-win in reality because it's not these calculated numbers that really imply risk. It's the subparticles and the presence of insulin and triglycerides that are driving that inflammatory and oxidative stress on the artery, causing the blockage to arise. And so trying to extrapolate, you know, what your heart disease risk is by looking at HDL and LDL is kind of like, you know, looking at the earth from, you know, the the, the, uh, space shuttle going, um, yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a, uh, a, a traffic jam down here on I-10. You know, that's, that's kind of what you're doing. And it's, it's not that effective. Yeah. That's the problem. Well, so. and p- part of the confusion that comes into play here is you got people like Dr. Dean Ornish, a well-known vegan physician who has called HDL cholesterol the garbage trucks of the of the body. And so it's like, OK, well, you don't want more garbage trucks because if you got more garbage trucks, you got more garbage to get rid of. And so I'm wondering if this new statement from Harvard is just kind of an extension of that same old, same old that's been out there for a while. They're just kind of saying, oh, well, look, this is new yeah well the issue is that there are actually hdl has subparticles as well it actually has two or three if i remember correctly it has two or three subparticles and the question is is are some of those subparticles more atherogenic than others and 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 you know that there's not enough science that i've seen to really say yay or nay with that because we never looked at them specifically as an indicator for risk we just looked at the calculated number or the hdlc um and so so what they're saying is that, well, we're kind of realizing these subparticles may play a bad role, too. So that's really what they're saying. So there's small, dense HDL particles? <laughs> Possibly. Well, they're, <laughs> there's, there's, there's bigger and smaller. Now, whether they're small, dense, uh, you know, they're, 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 are, there are particular, there are sizes of HDL and there are sizes of LDL. There are sizes of the uh, VLDLs. So they're not all, the, there's not just two molecules. It's, right. 
it's really a whole, you know, you've got Chevy, Chevy buses and Ford buses and Mercedes buses and, and different sizes. And they're all carrying different amounts of passengers and have different efficiencies. If you think about it from a car perspective. Sure. But, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the NMR will actually look at that mm-hmm. if they, if they identify it. Um, and you can actually see what your HDL subparticles are if you ask for them to do that. The challenge is there's not any science that we don't know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what it means. And so, some would even say the LDL particle size uh, and, and count. We don't really know what it means either. So that's one of the problems and the challenges of these new technologies for testing is nobody really knows what to do with it yet because they haven't been fully studied. Exactly. Well, I thought that was interesting, though, coming out of Harvard. So uh, good stuff. Let's pause here for a quick sponsor. We'll be right back. Are you looking for high-quality supplements to complement your healthy, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle? Well, look no more as I've teamed up with ketogenic practitioner and my Keto Talk podcast co-host, Dr. Adam Nally, to create the Keto Living line of supplements. Go to ketoliving.com to see our first two items available for you, the Keto Essentials Multivitamin and the Berberine Plus Blood Sugar Control Formula. Dr. Nally himself hands selected the key nutrients included in the Keto Essentials multivitamin, including vitamin D, methylated folate for those with the MTHFR gene mutation, vitamin B12, CoQ10, and so much more. And if you are concerned about elevated blood sugar and cholesterol levels, then check out our customized product called Berberine Plus, which combines the anti-inflammatory power of berberine with therapeutic levels of chromium and bonobo leaf. And we're just getting started on the Keto Living brand of ketogenic-focused supplements in 2017, including the first-ever high-fat meal replacement powder to help you ditch those problematic protein powders coming soon. Go to ketoliving.com to get your hands on these exciting new supplements to enhance your ketogenic diet. Ketoliving.com Have you tried Keto Fuel? Go to shopketoshake.com to learn more about Keto Fuel. It's one of the most exciting products to come out in the ketogenic world in a long time. It is a truly low-carb, high-fat shake that does not overload your body with excessive protein that would kick you out of nutritional ketosis. And the taste is outstanding. Reminds me somewhat of a sweetened almond milk. I've mixed it with water with ice cubes in a shaker, but also blended with heavy cream for a luscious milkshake that tastes like a milkshake. But it's healthy. I'm so glad Keto Fuel was created, and I think you're going to love it too. Once again, visit shopketoshake.com to get more information and to place your order for the Keto Fuel. Shopketoshake.com We're back here with Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Ketotalk.com is our website, and we answer questions about low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat, ketogenic diets. And we're up to the first featured question of the day. You ready, Doc? I am ready. He is ready. It was a delayed reaction, but he's ready. Mark has the first question. Hi, guys. I'm a recovered diabetic thanks to eating a low-carb but not necessarily ketogenic diet. I used to be on the maximum daily metformin dosage and took 130 units a day of long-acting insulin. I'm off of all those medications now and have an A1C of 5.3. I lost 60 pounds fairly easily on low-carb, but now I'm stalled out. My insulin levels are still very high. He didn't give a number. So I assume I'm still quite insulin resistant, which is making the weight loss stubborn. I've added in some intermittent fasting of 18.6, as well as a few 24-hour fasts on the weekend, where my blood ketone levels have reached about 1.0 millimolar. So my question for you guys is this. Does your experience show that a truly ketogenic diet lowers insulin levels? Is that a trick question? Some experts I've heard have said that research shows that insulin resistance is pretty much genetic, which means you may not be able to drop it below some arbitrary level no matter what you do. So do you agree or disagree with this? Thanks for answering my question, Mark. So Mark wants to know, does a ketogenic diet lower insulin levels and provide ultimate healing for insulin resistance, which seems to be genetic? And I will tell you, I get emails daily, Adam, and I'm sure you do too, from people that are severely insulin resistant 
and they feel frustrated. They feel like nobody's hearing them, that they're that they don't think it could fully be healed. What say you? Well, and let's back through Mark's question. I'm going to take it backwards through the question he's got. The first is first is insulin resistance is genetic. And the answer to that question is, yes, it actually is. Um, It it is genetic. And we know that it's genetic because of a couple things. We know that there are certain genes that are turned on. that you have that you inherited from mom or dad. We know that environment plays a role in the epigenetic or the stimulating of those genes to either turn on or off based on diet. Uh, we know that certain diets uh, affect those that ep- those epigenetics while you're in the uterus with mom. And we know that some of those epigenetics can be changed outside the uterus uh, based on what, how you eat and how you live your life. So, so is it genetic? Yes, it is. But the second component of this, insulin resistance is defined by a high insulin level. Uh, and that insulin level uh, and the concomitant blood sugar response to that insulin level is how you determine whether you're in stage one, two, three, four, or five of insulin resistance. Um, I, I look at insulin resistance as really a five-stage level uh, that was that was outlined really well by Dr. Joseph Kraft uh, in his book, and I, I like the way he does that. And that's what I've been seeing as a pattern for over 18 years, uh, you know, through tr- my training and all, all of my my pr- private practice. Um, the interesting thing is this, is that a high insulin level reflects insulin resistance based on that issue. And what I've been saying, and apparently either Mark hasn't listened or he hasn't listened between the lines, <laughs> is that uh, it it heals. It actually reverses. Now, whether that's an epigenetic reversal or whether that's giving the pancreas time to regenerate islet cells or what exactly that is, we don't know the answer to that. But what I see clinically is that over a period of 18 to 24 months, the insulin levels naturally begin to fall back to normal. So the and based on the insulin levels falling back to normal, what we define as normal, by definition, your insulin resistance is healing. Now, does that mean that your genetics change? No, but your your what's what we know is that the ketone itself has epigenetic effect on turning on and off different forms of of RNA, which is the you know the body reads the DNA and creates RNA, and then the RNA creates enzymes. Well, that what the body's doing is it's changing the RNA because ketones stimulate that so that you actually begin to remodel the body and handle your metabolism differently. And we know that, that effect, that's affected through a number of environmental stimuli, food being a big one that they're currently looking at through the Human Genome Project right now. So the, the short answer is, does a ketogenic diet reverse insulin resistance? Absolutely. I see it every day in my office. Does it take a while? Yes, it takes about two years is what I see. Now, are there some people that have gone down the road far enough that they don't reverse it? Yes, I see those too, where there are some people that are so so insulin resistant, they hit that fifth stage, the pancreas burns out, and, and can the pancreas regenerate itself at that point in time? In a few patients, I see no. They, they, they were stuck with using insulin for the rest of their life. But f- for the majority of the people that are coming into my office, it is reversible. So besides checking insulin levels and looking for them to come down, which would be a sign of healing the insulin resistance that you noted, what are the other signs that people should be on the lookout for that perhaps they are seeing healing, they're just not seeing it? Well, the only way to really see it is, is you know, you're looking at your blood sugar levels and you're finding that your A1C starts to trend downward. You know, I, I started doing these diets with patients that have A1Cs of seven and eight. And I have patients that, you know, after six months on the diet, they have an A1C of nine. And then we check them six months later and their A1C is at seven point, I'm sorry, 5.9. And then, they, then we check them a little later and they're actually at 5.7. And then a few mm-hmm. months later, we check them and they're, they're 5.4. And even though their morning sugars may be, you know, 110 or 115, and they're going, my blood Blood sugar in the morning is still high. Well, blood sugar in the morning doesn't mean anything other right. than it's it's a trend we're looking at, um, or you're, you're you're having physiologic glucose sparing. The, what's happening is your average sugars begin to just generally fall over a period of time. And as we check an insulin uh, an insulin level fasting, we see that those numbers go from 32, which I commonly see with people, down to down to, to 20, 22, and then down to down to 15, and then down to seven, and then down to f- less than five. And so, you know, my goal is to get people's fasting insulin scores less than five. But that takes about two years in many cases. Well, and Mark doesn't tell us when he uh, really got serious about a low carb diet. It doesn't look like he's necessarily doing a ketogenic diet. Maybe maybe listening to us here today, he'll switch over to a ketogenic diet. But he came from the maximum daily metformin dosage as well as 130 units a day of long acting insulin. And he is completely off of both of these medications with an A1C of 5.3. Dude. You are healing. You're something. <laughs> oh, he's healing, and he you know he's getting discouraged because it's not like you know. The problem is that a ketogenic diet 
reversal of, of insulin resistance is like not like ordering a Big Mac at McDonald's. You just can't drive up the window and get it. It takes time. It took time to get you where you were, and it's going to take time to reverse it. Um, you know, the body has to heal and remodel itself, and that, that takes years. But what he's just described is a healing process occurring. Now, does it uh, occur on natural uh, with just low carb alone? I, I really truly need. I, I see people have to let me back up and rephrase that. What I see when people truly heal is they have to be ketogenic to do it. I've, I've seen people not have the effect with low carb diets, but when they went truly ketogenic, the healing began. Yeah. And so be encouraged, Mark. It sounds like you are seeing healing. You're just not seeing it. And so uh, hopefully our answer here today uh, helps give you encouragement that you're doing a great job and that uh, insulin resistance isn't uh, ultimately going to just plague you for the rest of your life. Hey, dude, I'm right there with you. I understand as as well as anybody that's out there the frustration that you have. But just keep an eye on those health markers because they do do tell the tale of what's going on metabolically. So let's go to the second featured question of the day. This one's from Kurt. Hello, Jimmy and the doc. I have a question for you about sleep apnea. I use a CPAP machine and have been for 15 plus years. I wear it faithfully every night. I started keto in January 2016, and I've noticed that since eating this way that I don't have as many aches and pains as I once did. I have only been able to lose 10 or so pounds. My blood pressure is somewhat high at 138 over 85, and my A1C is 5.7, and my urine cortisol levels are fairly high at 188. Could incorrect pressure in my CPAP machine have anything to do with not being able to lose weight, despite the fact that I'm burning ketones according to the ketonics, which always shows me blowing red or higher levels of ketosis? Thank you for your time, Kurt. So Kurt wants to know about his CPAP machine. Uh, could the incorrect pressure in it prevent weight loss despite achieving therapeutic levels of ketones? Well, the short answer is absolutely yes, it can. Um, you know, we CPAP pressures are based on a number of things. Um, specifically weight and the ability of your, of your body to keep an airway open. And so as you lose weight, Kurt, it's important to understand that you may need to have those CPAP levels adjusted to be opti- to hit optimal um, ranges for sleep. Because if your CPAP level is too low or too high, it still may be stressful for you uh, in that regard. So that's why I, you know, people in my practice, it, I, I want them checking those those pressures every four or five years, making sure that we're, we're getting the, the, the pressure settings correct. Um, the the Cool thing that's out now are these are what are called auto pat machines, where it's not just a continuous airway pressure; it's actually a bipap machine where this machine is smart enough to listen to your body and and adjust the pressure where the machine thinks it needs to be. Oh wow! The challenge the challenge is that you just have to have a, you have number one you have to have a new machine set up to do that. But number two, you have to have a physician look at the ranges and say, okay, these are the, these are the optimal ranges high and low that the machine needs to hit. And so having a, a titration study, uh, where, where we find those pressures for you is actually important. So I've actually started switching all my patients over to AutoPAP where, where they can tolerate that because it seems to be a much better unit. It works really well. And it, it gives some great pressure settings that allows the machine to help the person. If there's any fluctuation, you know, say they travel and change altitude or they, they lose some more weight. It actually does give give some 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 wiggle room in that regard. Um, but if you've done that and you've checked the machine and the pressures are correct, then I would say, you know, it's probably something in your diet still yeah. that's spiking those insulin levels. Well, and looking at his uh, results that he's had so far since January 2016, which has been a while, uh, he's lost 10 pounds. He's uh, his blood pressure still moderately high. Um his A1C is down to five. So we, we see, we don't know what his numbers were before. If this is better or worse or, you know, the same, we just don't know. And cortisol, I don't know if that's a high urine cortisol level. I'll assume I'll take his word that it is. And I'm wondering if he's testing with the ketonics and he's always blowing red, which is supposedly the highest level of ketosis. Maybe test blood for a period of time, Kurt, just to see where you stand, uh, that maybe there might be some calibration wrong with ketonics, that if it's always showing red, that just that was a red flag for me, Adam, when I saw that, because I'm like, you're always blowing red. That seems kind of weird. Um, test your blood at least for a few days just to kind of see, are you truly in therapeutic levels of ketosis? And if you are, then it sounds like maybe he's trending in the right direction. Um and getting the CPAP uh, adjustments that you mentioned would be helpful. 
Yeah. The, 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 the looking at the trends is actually a key there. Yeah. Well, Kurt, thank you for your question. And we're up to the third featured question of the day. This one's from Mark and Janine. Hey, guys, we love your podcast and anxiously await the new episodes each week. My wife and I have been low carb for two years, keto for most of the time the past year. I travel about 18 days a month, so it's hard to maintain a state of nutritional ketosis all the time. Boy, I know that when I travel. We are 60 and 61 years old, and we keep our blood ketone levels between 0.5 to 1.0 most of the time. Our question is about rising blood sugar levels after getting a vitamin C IV from our functional medicine doctor. My wife and I have both been getting this treatment lately because our blood work showed that we are low on vitamin B and C, even though we take supplements for both. After the first vitamin C IV treatment, my blood glucose level rose to 172. My wife's went to 284. Uh, about one hour after the treatment. Our normal fasting blood glucose levels are around 77 to 95, depending on what we ate. Needless to say, we became concerned this would have a negative impact on our insulin resistance. When we asked our doctor about it, thinking that there must be glucose in the IV bag, she said that it was just a reaction to the high-dose vitamin C and that there was no glucose in it. We had already paid for two of the treatments each, so we did it again this week, and this time our blood sugar went up to 144 and 128 respectively an hour later. Have you ever heard of this kind of reaction, or do you think that there was some glucose in the IV? Our doctor knows that we practice low carb. She's monitoring us, but she's still quite skeptical. Thanks for any info on this, Mark and Janine. So they want to know, can a high-dose vitamin C IV treatment spike blood sugar levels alone, or is there possible that there was glucose in in this uh, solution? Well, I'm going to preface this for Mark and Jeannie by telling them that I am not a fan of IV drips uh, of vitamin C. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But the absolutely, um, if the doc said there was no glucose in it, then there probably wasn't. But what they need to understand is this. Ascorbate, which is the vitamin C in the IV, mm-hmm. actually drives production of a peroxide inside the vein. Um, so what happens is you actually start to increase the peroxide level, which actually causes a number of cells to die. Like um, hydrogen peroxide? Hydrogen peroxide. You're wow. basically putting hydrogen peroxide in Yikes. the veins, what you're doing. And it bubbles um, up. <laughs> well, now, there's risks with this. That's the problem is yeah. that you know, they, they looked at this as a, as a form of cancer treatment or, a, or an adjunctive approach to cancer treatment. And the, that is still out there. You know, or the, I should say the answers are still unsure, we're unsure of. Right. But certain cell, certain cell lines will die in a, in a higher presence of peroxide. And so when you increase the peroxide level, you can actually cause cellular death. Well, cellular death is going to spike cortisol, which is going to rise glucose. And so you're going to see a rise in your blood sugar. That's exactly what's going to happen. So it will do that. Um, so the, the concern is, you know, what is the reason? for doing these vitamin C drips. If you're not absorbing vitamin C and vitamin B, putting it in through an IV is not the way you should be doing it. That means your gut's got a problem and you need to address your gut bacteria and your mm. gut microbiome. Um, the problem is that toxics, this toxic stress raises the blood sugar. Um, and not only that, it raises something called oxalate, which actually leads to kidney stones. Um, and there's actually been fatalities with vi- vitamin C infusions with people that have, have what's called a G6PD deficiency. There's a genetic deficiency that you can have. And when that G6PD deficiency rises, it can actually kill you. And so so you, wow. you want to be very careful with the with vitamin C drips and things of that nature. I'm not a fan of them. Um, the, the science doesn't show there's been any um, significant benefit with them other than, and I'm going to be frank, buying somebody's boat. Um, so it, wow. it's really not uh, something that I recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to kick you out of ketosis. That's one of my big concerns. So what can they do to boost their vitamin C and or vitamin B levels? Um, are, are there natural foods that would fit within the ketogenic protocol that they could consume to try to get it? Or it sounds like you said their gut health may be compromised to so try to deal with that first. Yeah. I mean, number one, you can supplement vitamin B, but what we know that MTHFR deficiencies will will inhibit vitamin B absorption. Number two, uh, with vitamin C is very easily absorbed and and dumped out of the system. Um, But if you're not absorbing vitamin C, that that implies that there's an issue with your gut lining health. So making sure you're taking in a good form of a probiotic and a prebiotic are the big keys. Uh, Number two, making sure that you're uh, eliminating factors that may play a role 
um, with uh, gut health. We know that um, Splenda, the maltodextrin, and the, the, that Splenda seems to have some inhibiting effect on the gut health. Uh, other sweeteners like your xylitols and your sugar alcohols. Uh, I've not seen anything with erythritol in that regard, but we know the other sugar alcohols can play a role there too. So being cautious with some of those uh, and, and you know finding somebody who understands how to treat gut health is important. Well, thank you, Mark and Janine, for your question. And we're up to the Keto Talk mailbox. And this one is from David Doc. He says, hey, guys, back in episode 12 of Keto Talk. Wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Dr. Dowley mentioned that cortisol levels rise as a direct result of an injury or surgery and that depending on the extent of the damage to your body and the repair it needs, it might kick you out of ketosis for two and upwards of 12 months. So my question for you guys is this. When you are out of a state of nutritional ketosis during this recovery period and assuming that you stay on a ketogenic diet, what exactly is my body using for fuel during this time and what is happening to all the dietary fat that I'm consuming? Thanks for a great and very informative podcast, David. I thought I'd save the the geeky one for the very last one for you, Doc. But uh, David wants to know what is fueling the body and what happens to dietary fat that's consumed while you're out of ketosis during this injury recovery period? Well, if I said two to 12 months, that may have been a slip because I probably, I meant two to 12 weeks. Okay. Um, I have had a couple people uh, who've had some pretty extensive surgery um, where, where they've had struggle with uh, the ketogenic state. You're getting into ketosis until the wounds completely healed at the skin level. So if you have an open wound that's staying open and those can be open for up to six months at times, that could be an issue. But for most part, usually by 12 weeks, most people are able to get back into ketosis if they've had extensive surgery. Um, so, so if I said 12 months, that was a slip. And I, but even I 12 that. weeks is a long time. So what's still happening is a long during time. that time? Yeah. So now the second the second issue is is this. A lot of people think that you're either burning fat or burning sugar, burning fat or burning sugar. That's right. a switch, and it's not a switch. It's it's more of a, um, you know, it's more of a it's more of a, a great a, f- a fuel mixture. You're either burning more sugar or l- more more ketones, and and that really is driven by an insulin uh, effect. You have to have some insulin, and so you're going to have some glucose, and, and so the body is actually it's it's more of a, a fuel mix rather than an on or an off, like a sliding scale. It's like a sliding scale, yeah. So if David, if I think if David is actually recovering from surgery and he's eating high fat and he's not providing the large amount of carbohydrate, his body is still producing ketones. Yes. But because of the trauma, he's also producing some of his own glucose for healing and for his immune system to do its job. And so he may not be into really deeper ketosis, but he'll still be burning fat. Um, what what I usually see in this case is people don't gain weight; they just have trouble losing more weight. Yeah. So the body will kind of maintain its weight level while you're going through the healing process. And then once that insulin level can start to fall, you'll start to see a deeper ketosis and the person will be able to lose weight at that point in time. That's usually what I end up seeing. So um, it's not an on-off switch. It's more of a, of a fuel mix. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you ever run your two-stroke engine on your, your weed eater or your, your you know, my, my son had a two-stroke motorcycle. And so we'd have to mix the fuel just right. And so that's, it's, it's like a fuel mixture. A two-stroke uh, engine. I haven't heard that. Uh, you're getting all really geeky on us and non-nutritionally now. So. <laughs> there's, a, there's probably a couple car guys out there. Like, oh, I get that. Both of them so. get it. The rest of us are like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jimmy, man up. We got to teach you about. There you go. Engine. Yeah, I need to come back to, to Arizona again and, and learn about cars and motorcycles. <laughs> Well, uh, and, and certainly during a recovery period, David, it sounds like that's your goal. You want to get recovered and recuperated and the ketosis will come when it comes. And I think if you're eating, you know, healthy fats and moderating the protein and minimizing your carbohydrates, you'll know when it when it kicks back in, it'll pop up on your blood ketone meter, your breath ketone, however you test. So you'll see it when it comes back. But I don't think the primary purpose post-surgery is to worry about that. I think it's to get healed. And uh, I would think that a ketogenic diet being the anti-inflammatory diet that it is would help that healing happen even faster. Oh, yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to dramatically help the f- speed of the healing. People tell me that all the time. They come in from so- shoulder surgery or knee replacement surgery or hip replacement surgery, and they always comment to me, my doc said I healed up three or four weeks faster than his average patient. And <laughs> that's a comment I always hear. Um, 
you know, think of it, don't stress about it, number one, because that's just going to make your cortisol go up higher. Yes. Um, but number two, just think of it as if you shifted to more of a low-carb diet rather than a truly ketogenic diet. People still lose weight. They still see tremendous benefit on a low-carb diet. Yeah. Um, they're just not into that keto- ketogenic state as often, but that's what your body needs at that moment in time because it's healing. Awesome. Well, David, thank you for your question. And we are up to the iTunes reviews portion of the show. And the first review is from Marvin MCK. Hi, Jimmy and the doc. Just wanted to let you know your program has been a huge help to me. I've been aware of my insulin resistance for several years, though I only graduated into diabetes a year ago. I don't know if I call it graduating, but okay. Uh, I have also been skeptical of the medical community's answer to that. Until last year, I fought a slow and losing battle to control it with diet and exercise. And in January this year, a friend told me about your podcast. I began listening as I ride my bicycle one to two hours daily. I'm now all caught up, got my wife on board. And though we are making progress and not perfect, eating low-carb, high-fat has literally turned my battle with diabetes around. I'm on the winning side of this thing now. Thanks. Thank you, Marvin. And then M. Doe. This is a fantastic podcast. I learned something new every episode. In spite of being keto for over three years and reading everything I can get my hands on, including Jimmy's books, the doc has quick answers for medical questions and his experience with his patients. And Jimmy provides keto tips and strategies from his own experience and extensive knowledge. Love this podcast and recommend for getting between the lines on all things keto. So thank you, M. Doe. And if you'd like to leave us a review, head on over to iTunes and type in Keto Talk. And once you're there, you'll be able to find us. I promise you, you will find the show. Uh, There's a bunch of keto podcasts out there now, Doc, that have popped up. And I'm really glad to see this keto family of podcasts growing. We're we're taking over iTunes, dude. (laughs) That's cool. That's awesome. So it's pretty neat. So that's it for episode 75. And as always, head on over to KetoTalk.com and you can click on the donate button. Helps keep us on the air and ketotalkfb.com which by the time this airs we will probably be at 20,000 members there so go check out and uh, be a part of the community of ketonians so doc until next thursday we'll see you then see you then you've been listening to keto talk with jimmy moore and the doc Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, then head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keto Talk. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.